0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the CMO Spotlight. With insight from top executives on how to address the key challenges facing the business world and the marketing industry.
1: Here are your hosts, Katherine Hayes and Jenny Rooney.
0: Hey, and welcome to the show. I'm Katherine Hayes. I'm the co-author of Beyond Advertising, creating value through all customer touch points. And hi,
2: I'm Jenny Rooney. I'm the editor of the CMO Network at Forbes.
0: We're your host today for the CMO Spotlight, where we come to you uh, the last Friday of every month to bring you insights from the world's top chief marketing officers. And today is is no exception. We have a fabulous group of uh, two chief marketing officers, both of whom are going to be talking about some of the new things that they've been doing, shaking things up. Both award winners, multiple accolades for both of them. So why don't we go ahead and get started? First of all, we're going to have uh, Jill Kress. She's the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for National Geographic Partners. So with that, let's go ahead and welcome Jill to our show. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Glad you're with us. Hey, Jill,
2: how are you? I'm great. Good to talk to you. Uh,
0: So we wanted to, I I thought it might be kind of interesting, your title is Chief Marketing and Communications Officer, not of National Geographic, but as National Geographic Partners, although you have responsibility across the whole brand. So tell us, that seems like a really important uh, moniker.
1: National Geographic Partners is a three-year-old joint venture that was recently acquired by the Walt Disney Corporation. The brand National Geographic has been delighting consumers with its visual storytelling for over 130 years. We like to say that National Geographic was bringing people the world and everything in it long before the internet or Instagram and continues to do that. It really came to life as a nonprofit organization for mm-hmm. its first 130 years and it was, you know, formed as a, a society And it rallied people even then around this topic of membership and the power of community and rallying like-minded people around understanding this complex world around us and what was happening on all layers of geography, the earth, the land, the air, and the sea, to ensure that we could essentially keep the planet in balance through storytelling. And it is, I think, most beloved and, and trusted and seen as such a high-quality brand because of its iconic magazine, which was the primary mm-hmm. expression of the brand through the, the nonprofit National Geographic Society. And three years ago, the, the nonprofit came together with 21st Century Fox, who was um, in, a, in a joint venture related to its television business to say, we can have more impact in the world if we take all of our storytelling assets and our products together and create a, a for profit, purpose driven media company. So, National Geographic Partners was formed as a joint venture between 21st Century Fox at the time and the nonprofit National Geographic Society. And um, that really allowed the society to do what it does so well, which is invest in some of the world's most bold, curious people who sort of push their boundaries to go out and explore and understand the world. And we can then take those stories on the media side of the house and create content and amplify them. And what's really unique is that through this structure, which Disney has now acquired as part of the acquisition of the 21st Century Fox um, assets, we give 27% of our proceeds back to the National Geographic Society so that they can continue to drive impact around... The you know the, the work that they're doing to um, protect some of the last wild places, the land, the sea, and drive a really ambitious agenda around education and educating um, the next generation.
0: That's that sounds so, yeah. yeah awesome. What an amazing story in terms of both the history of it going all the way back and what it's meant for all of our lives and the role that it's played. And as and you the said, bring the, the company world together, exactly, right. I mean, it's a new
2: entity, and which, then bringing it into the into yeah this
0: generation really. And, exciting. and as
2: CMO, you have that brand equity, that historic iconic brand, and yet you're operating in this new structure of innovation and sort of storytelling, and
1: you're able to sort of pull more levers, if you will. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I, when I joined, I I joined after a really rewarding and incredible career at MasterCard. And I came here because I so believed in the, the vision of what this company stood for and how relevant that was to mm-hmm. today's consumer who's really seeking purpose and meaning and, and personal growth. And when I joined, I... to to sort of build on what you said, I felt like we were at one of the oldest startups, right? Mm -hmm. Because you do, you have so much to work with, you know, brand that stands for, you know, the highest levels of trust, quality, Mm -hmm. integrity, and using all of those positive attributes to lean into what's next around visual storytelling, you know, premium content that will air both on our television network, as well as part of You know Disney's ambitious plans around streaming, related to Disney Plus and Hulu, and really taking our editorial product and ensuring that it is resonating with our audiences in in platform specific ways. So, you know, this role to get back, I guess, to the original question, is an important one because the brand straddles both of these organizations, Mm -hmm. and really ensuring that we we treat this brand. Uh, To, you know, sort of respect the fact that we truly feel like we stand on the shoulders of giants who built it um, and continue to build positive equity around it is something that we take really seriously. It's
0: also fascinating that you've safeguarded the National Geographic Society itself with that 27 percent give back. So it sounds like they still have that nonprofit independence that, you know, we as consumers of it and, and having known the society for our whole lives keeps that. Um, intact while
2: it's still surrounding a it with all these purpose. Yeah, I mean it's like that's core to what the brand exists for. So while other companies are seeking to find their quote unquote purpose or sort of their or the risk of meaning, melding it all together and, yeah. and losing that completely in
0: uh, in all the change. So you've been there since 2016, right?
1: Yes, I joined in November of that year, and you've been busy.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I got. I mean. <laughs> The elephant in the Room is this big award that you all just got uh, not too long ago, Jill. So you have to share, you have to tell us that story. If you could unpack it for us, that would be wonderful.
1: Well, we've had, um, we've had quite a run um, related to awards. So just, I want to make sure I'm giving you, I'm I'm taking the cue appropriately. I mean, we just... Well, free solo. Let's talk about... Free solo, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Incredible. Which is our biggest accolade ever. So, um, I, I, I mean, I would say. So, we have a really ambitious and bold programming strategy that came out of the television business, which was really in this competitive landscape related to where we are in the non-linear television world, and you know, with with so many competitors out there um, creating content, we embarked on a really bold vision of premium programming inspired by the CEO of our global networks, Courtney Monroe, to ensure that, you know, the stories that we were telling were bold, premium, pushing boundaries in line with our brand, yet ensuring that we were as entertaining as content that other networks were doing. And part of that plan was to launch a Doc Films branch. And so that was launched just two short years ago. Wow which is pretty amazing. Uh, and Free Solo is such an incredibly ambitious story. It was one that, you know, we were involved with from the very start with Alex Honnold, who is the hero of the story, along with Jimmy Chin, who is one of our most iconic photographers and has been a part of the National Geographic family, and Chai Vassarelli. Uh, who, who you know, directed and created this incredible, compelling story. And I think it's so emblematic of the National Geographic values. We embrace, we've done a lot of brand work. You mentioned that we've been busy. So right. we've done a lot of brand work to understand what what has this Brand stood for. How do you create a signal through the noise for 130 years? And so much of it ties to this explorer's code, which is the importance of being curious, the importance of pushing your boundaries and never being satisfied. And Free Solo is such an amazing (laughs) representation of those values and was, you know, truly inspiring and, and thrilling. And no matter how many times I've seen it, I continue to have sweaty palms and, and white knuckles. Same, just as even, as even saying the
0: name and talking about what, you know, in terms of pushing those boundaries, mm-hmm. every time I have this visceral reaction of how amazing it was and for you to capture that and, and share it so broadly, it's pretty fabulous.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the the risk associated with every element of it, but the reward of of inspiring the world through that mm-hmm. story. So for those listeners who haven't seen it, I highly encourage you to to watch our um, Academy Award-winning documentary, Free Solo, which tells the story of Alex Honnold's free solo climb up 3,000 feet um, of El Capitan without a single rope, and um, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, I, I used to say that when I, when I started working for National Geographic, the thing I loved most were the reactions that I got from people mm-hmm. all over the world when I told them, and much of that was tied to the experience that they had with their with the magazine so it may have been reading it with their with their grandparents or you know their their parents collecting them and what's been really great of late is in my travels i run into people who share how free solo has inspired mm-hmm. them to take a risk so or cool. to do something that they've always wanted to do that they were afraid of doing i met an executive recently who's very creative and shared that while he's creative in in some elements, he's always wanted to paint and was always afraid of actually taking a painting class. And after seeing Free Solo, the minute it ended, uh, he said he finally registered for a class um, those, to learn how awesome. to paint. So it's so the- great to see the brand still pushing boundaries and inspiring people. Yeah,
0: it's, it's fun, because actually, and, and I just for the record, Jenny and I are not paid any money for promoting Free Solo. <laughs> but, but last month, we had the chief marketing officer, Tom Herbst Coincidentally, for the, for the North Face. <laughs> and, you know, what's so striking to me about the combination of what you're talking about, what he talked about is, this was not like, hey, let's jump on the cultural bandwagon and, you know, quickly go with the cultural zeitgeist, your relationship both um, the North Faces and yours had been working with these um, athletes for many, many years and been part of their journey. So it was certainly something that was earned and a partnership that that had been forged over a long period of time. So, you know, being able to culminate in that in the in the Oscar win. Congratulations. But uh, but I think it's also a lesson in, you know, how long it takes to build these sorts of things.
1: Jill- I, I agree. I think it's int- you know what we you know, first and foremost, I think that we're really proud of the fact that National Geographic is really a community of bold people with a insatiable curiosity, and I think that's why people like Jimmy, who's core to the story and has a relationship with both National Geographic and the North Face, um, continue to 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 be such an an integral part of our organization.
2: So so tell me a little bit talk about the fact that, you know, obviously what you're describing as CMO, you know, being involved with this development, you know, and and sort of you talked about how you needed the content to align with the brand, um attributes and definition. You know, as a CMO, you're you were involved therefore in the development of this content and which was essentially a product, if you will, mm-hmm. right? From yeah. mm-hmm. from from National Geographic. So I mean, this speaks to how the role of CMO continues to evolve. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you regard the CMO role, um, both within the organization, but also just as an executive yourself, you know, wh- how do you see the the role evolving? What sorts of component parts does the CMO increasingly need to have ownership over, um, steer, at least be in conversation with others about? And I would just add the context that... Um, um, you, you, you know, you were named to the Forbes CMO Next List um, in September. So congratulations to that. Um, but talk a little bit about how you and I know there was another Business Insider um, mm-hmm. accolade that you received recently, most too. Most innovative
0: CMOs. Yep.
2: Yeah. So, so talk about this evolving role of CMO specifically from your perspective, Jill.
1: I don't I think that one of the, the key things that has always been critical to the role of CMO is representing the voice of the consumer. And yet it becomes even more important in this age of sort of, you know, the this this content driven world that we live in in really understanding in a very real time way what's working with consumers. So one of the one of the first things that we set to do when I joined and we were looking at how we could ensure that we would continue to be relevant with our audience was really understanding them more deeply. So we did a global segmentation. We had had sort of versions of segmentation. A lot of our segmentation related to television was very demographic-driven, of course, because you're always trying to target a very specific um, demo, and and that's what we're selling as a media company. But it was really getting much deeper around the things that we talked about. What was the role of our values to an audience? And so we defined an aspiring explorer target that has really driven all of our insights and analytics work. And so I think, you know, while, you know, there's always been a performance driven, I think performance driven is is another one that we'll get to, but I think understanding who is that target and how are they reacting to your content is critically, critically important. And, you know, continuing as we ideate on new content, Mm -hmm. on new products, new expressions of that content, like we're you know exploring um, again how we can have an audio expression of the brand through podcasts, really understanding that audience and what they expect from us. And then I think you know performance has never been more important, and so we've really been passionate about the the importance of defining strategy and KPIs upfront related to that audience and ensuring that we're we're tracking those and sort of the the all the opportunities that we have to get ahead of how we market our our television business in particular, which is sort of a key driver of consumer engagement and profitability for us. Um, We're able to do creative testing. We're able to sort of test the actually test the content itself. And so I would say it's, you know, this relentless focus on who is the target consumer. And for us, that's interesting because we have an existing user that in some cases is not the same definition as our target market. Um, so you can, you know, again, given the fact that our primary product for a very long time was a piece of print publication, we have a subscriber that is a bit older. Right. And, and yet we are the most followed brand on Instagram. We just reached <laughs> another sort of key uh, critical success factor wow. for our brand. <laughs> we had 100 million followers on our hero Instagram account. Um, which was pretty amazing, which shows that, you know, we do have a a younger audience who engages with with our brand. Um, And so it's really sort of understanding that audience and what's working with them and how we can continue to not only engage them, but also delight them and bring them on a journey across all of the experiences of National Geographic from the beautiful photos that they love and share on Instagram into our television experience into what we're going to you know, create for streaming platforms and our amazing editorial content as well as sort of surround sound things like trips, etc. Um, the performance nature, I think, of this role is is incredible, and you know we have access to more data than we've ever had, and so we sort of, you know. Look at the intersection of sort of big data with thick data, as we like to say, to mm-hmm. sort of really get at what matters and what kind of in- insights do we, we glean from our audience that we can overlay on sort of big data related to trends. So you know that inspires content. so you know you have a broad topic like natural history, and we really need to understand you know what what is relevant about that topic. And then I guess I would say from a value standpoint, I think CMOs, because of all that, need to be more resilient than ever. <sighs> and, you know, we have a, there's a lot of
0: There's a lot of minefields in the chief marketing officer uh-huh. world these days. So I, I love that notion of resilience.
1: I think it's so true because, you know, especially here at National Geographic, but I think for every CMO, mm-hmm. you're working with people who are incredibly creative and passionate. And, you know, the role of performance metrics was, you know, we lived in a bit of a lag time, right? I mean, in the in the era of advertising, we were able to create beautiful stories yeah. and believe in them. And you do some testing, but then you'd put them on air mm-hmm. and wait for the results. We can have beautiful creative executions and we test them before we put them out and they may not resonate and we have to action that, right? So, and, and creative teams are some of the most passionate, right? So those conversations around sort of what is the balance of Mm -hmm. of the art and the science and therefore the resiliency associated with that. And it's not that testing, testing drives everything. Of course, we still make calls that are very much driven by the art of what we do, but there is that level of, you know, being informed by data.
0: Do, I just just, a, quick, a, lot yeah, just a quick clarification, too, because obviously, you know, <laughs> over the year, over the last few years, we've heard a lot about big data. So how do you define thick data? It's a great yeah, contrast. So I
1: think, you know, thick data is the, the sort of the the observed behavior. So it really is something that we we may get from spending time with our target consumer, you know, Mm. sort of by observing them. We do quite a lot of ethnography, focus groups, user panels. And so, you know, we we can pick up on something that matters to them. And then through more of those qualitative tools that we have, we can start to build out that hypothesis around what they're saying, what they're telling us about, how our content is resonating, what the brand stands for. You know, I think one of the examples for us is as a for-profit purpose-led media company, our audience really is looking for us to help them understand this complex world around them mm-hmm. but but what is their role in it and so i think you know consumers have evolved from the era of conspicuous consumption to collecting experiences to now collecting those experiences and those moments that really drive personal growth for them. And so we were seeing that, you know, you see the data, it's, it's out there in, mm. in, in our own data and in other data. But for us, it was really understanding what does that mean? And that involved really sort of getting to that thick data, distilling down all the quant around making an impact. And so consumers were saying, for us, at National Geographic, you tell us a lot about challenges related to the environment or you know ecosystems or climate, or the topic that we've recently embraced, single use plastic plastics. We would like you to tell us what is our role in making a difference? How can we play a role wow. in actually leaving this world a better place mm-hmm. than than we found it? And so it's that kind of data that, you know, we refer to as that sort of thick data.
2: Jill, what are w- with whom are you mo- having the most conversations in your organization? Who do you find yourself collaborating with the most?
1: Well, history? it's definitely the, the the product side. So certainly on the content side, you know, I spend a, a tremendous amount of time with our co- television content team and also our editorial content team. Um, so those are really sort of our, our products. But then it's also... Our technology team, because so much of how the brand presents itself, whether it's through a digital experience or reaching that consumer through an innovation that we can we can we can use within digital environments, um, the the intersection of technology and marketing, I think, is really critical. And I think a lot of the you know nods that we've received to to you know being seen as innovative and you know sort of testing into different ways that we've used chatbots on Facebook and things like that have really been that that collaboration with the the tech team.
2: Can you talk a little bit about Planet or Plastic because I think that's a really awesome was an additional really too, cool yeah. example of like just a manifestation. I mean for people listening that's a great case study also of how how this is all actually played out for you.
1: Yeah. I'm th- I'm thrilled to talk about it because I'm really passionate about it. So it is a global multi-year initiative and based on that observation of our audience really looking to understand how they could make a difference in the world we saw that there was a lot of discussion on the challenges of single use plastic every year 9 million tons of plastic waste end up in our oceans and you know there are estimates that suggest you know that can remain in marine environments for 450 years or longer and the problem is is really only getting worse you know there's challenges with recycling etc and so We were observing this play out from kind of a Zeitgeist standpoint at the same time our editor-in-chief was pursuing a story on the science behind plastic, the good it's brought to the world, but also the challenges it raises. And so in June of last year, the cover story on the National Geographic magazine was a story about the global plastic crisis. And opportunities to reduce that and so we use that as a moment to kick off this multi-year campaign which was really designed to drive awareness to our audience and also education on how they could reduce reuse and recycle um, plastic and ultimately it has evolved to um, really sort of mobilize this community to feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves which we also know is important to them and so you know, while we were working on, you know, sort of scientific discovery and exploration of that topic, we're engaging with our audience to actually get them to commit to use less plastic. So we launched a pledge, and we've had incredible response. And I think one of the interesting observations to the pledge, if you go on to um, the National Geographic um, Plastic Pledge page, you can have a, a quick calculation of how much plastic you use. And it becomes it's, – it's illuminating, right? How many straws do you use every week? How many bottles? How many plastic lives mm, when you get a takeaway really coffee? Really concrete. Yeah, it's really concrete and you can reduce to use less and while it may feel if I Jill as a consumer you've used five less straws what's the big deal what is that really going to you know sort of make a dent in the challenge that we face what you start to see is the power of the collective because as you sort of calculate your own use and pledge to use less you see that you're contributing to a much bigger commitment and you're you're part of this. So we've launched it in more than 20 countries around the world. It's been as as a, you know, we are a global brand. We reach con- we reach consumers in over 170 countries and to see our colleagues on the marketing side really embracing this. We've had brilliant executions of this campaign. And in Brazil, in Germany, in India, and so it is something that um, has a lot of interest momentum. And it really is about ensuring we're shifting from just telling that story to actually mobilizing a community and bringing them together. We, so we, yeah. we can,
0: clearly tell the and excitement you even in wrap the voice. magazine
1: in paper instead of plastic. So
2: <laughs> pretty, right impressive. down to the every last detail. It's amazing, Jill. It's fantastic. Well, that fantastic. was interesting. You know, because we, oh, oh, so we're going to have to wrap. I'm so okay.
0: sorry. Jo. Of course, you're going to no, you're why? killing <laughs> us and our listeners. No pun intended. And rap. it's more interesting. <laughs> But um, <laughs> but but unfortunately, we do. We'd love to st- keep in touch and have you back on the show. You are doing so many amazing things and are such a role model in so many ways. So Thanks, thank Jill. you so much, Jill, for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Jill Kress is the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for National Geographic Partners. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.